in a world where every diet you know is wrong. Well, not every diet. I mean... Yes, but almost every doesn't sound as good. Yeah, but... Shut up. One man stands alone. Well, not completely. I mean... It's time for Adam Martin, the No Breakfast Guy. And let's talk fast. Fasting, fitness, and fat loss. What's going on guys and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Let's Talk Fast podcast. I'm your host Adam Martin, more commonly known as the No Breakfast Guy and I hope you're doing what you love with the people that you love and let's just jump straight into it. So this week comes basically uh, purely from, I guess, uh, questions from you guys and I put out a question box a little while ago, uh, probably a week and a half, two weeks ago now, asking what are the fitness myths out there or exercise-related myths that are out there that you had heard that you weren't too sure of the answers from and you wanted some clarification from myself. So you probably would have seen from the title already that it's titled, I don't know as I'm recording this, it'll be something around the lines of exercise myths busted or um, top exercise myths answered or something along those kind of lines. So I'm just going to go through all of the questions uh, that you guys asked in relation to there was stuff about running, there was uh, things about you know fat or muscle being heavier, uh, questions around walking, should you be doing weights before cardio and, and things like that. So let's just dive straight into it. Um, there was quite a few questions, so um, I want to obviously continue to try and keep my podcast short and sharp and to the point so you guys can get the answers that you're after and I'm not here waffling on too long. Um, and I'll leave those longer podcasts to when I've got the guests um, on here, or should it be a topic that I feel I need to. But I think we can get into these and punch through them today and give you some value for the podcast. But as always, guys, could you please just spend 30 seconds, hit the pause button now, jump over, give me a good old five-star rating and a positive review. It would help me out immensely, and it would help continue to share this podcast out to others. And if you could also give a little screenshot Put it up on your Instagram page, tag me on it so I know you're doing it and share it amongst your Instagram followers. That would be fantastic as well. But let's just jump straight into it. The very first uh, question we had is, is running bad for your knees? And I always love answering this question like I've seen it answered with around squats. Squatting badly is bad for your knees. Squatting is not bad for your knees. So <clears throat> to kind of put that in context around running, can you say running badly for your knees is, um, sorry, running badly is bad for your knees? But um, in total, running is obviously always going to be a stress on the body, just like anything. But you've got to outweigh, sorry, you've got to weigh and put it in context, is what you're doing going to be worse off for you in general for your health than what the potential side effects might be, as opposed to other side effects going to be worse than what the potential health benefits are gonna be. Now, running is a fantastic exercise to do. Anyone and everyone can do it, and that's why I love doing it. That's why I've always done it, it's why I promote it. But you do have to be careful of your body. And so if you are someone at the moment who's never exercised, and you're very overweight or obese at the moment, I wouldn't be suggesting that you should be running. That increased uh, I guess, um, impact on your joints and your body when you've never exit or you haven't done much exercise at all, plus you're carrying a lot of extra weight, is probably not going to be of benefit to you or the benefits that you're going to get from it are far outweighed by the potential damages that you could be doing to your body. So I would be suggesting do a lot more walking 
and getting your movement going, start focusing on your um, your weight and obviously paying more attention to your foods and things like that to start reducing your uh, weight. And with that increased walking, your body will start getting used to the kind of gait pattern of walking and moving and getting that locomotion going. And you could progress to some running. If you were someone who was doing a couple of kilometers and you wanted to start running more, then you would look to slowly build it up. If you're looking to do a marathon, you're not gonna go and do marathon on your very first run. You'd start with one kilometer, you'd build it to two kilometers, then five, and then 10, and then 15. And over time, you would build it up so your joints and your body become used to the impact that you're putting through it. So a roundabout way of saying, is running bad for your knees? No, but with big caveats there. Obviously, be mindful of the stage you're at, what you're doing, and don't look to increase your level of running by too much. A good golden rule I like to do is your total volume of running for the week, never increase it by more than five to 10% per week. If you're someone who's been you know, highly active your whole life, you could probably increase your running activity by as a volume of 10% each week. If you're someone who's very new to exercise and you've just started running, then maybe only increase it 5% a week and your body will adapt because the bodies don't like being stressed. They don't like being um, you know, made to feel sore and things like this. So it will adapt to make you stronger and the ligaments become um, better and more adaptable to kind of the um, pressures you're gonna be putting through it. So just be mindful and take things slowly. And what I mean by kind of total volume, if you're kind of currently doing two runs a week and they're both five kilometers, that totals up to 10 kilometers of running for the entire week. I wouldn't increase that total volume, that total amount of running that you're doing by more than 10%. So week two, you wouldn't be doing any more than 11 kilometers cause 10 kilometers times 10% is one kilometer. Add one kilometer to that, that's 11 kilometers. So it, you might sit there and go, geez, that's really kind of conservative. Yeah, but do you wanna be able to kind of continue to run for the rest of your life? Take your time to slowly build this up. If you jump from kind of doing two five kilometers a run uh, two five-kilometer runs a week, total of 10 kilometers, and all of a sudden are doing 30 kilometers a week, this is where injuries start to occur, and this is where this myth of running is bad for you comes from because people just do far too much, far too soon. They get shin splints, they get um, problems with their arches, issues with their knees and hips, and they th sit there and go, well, I'm just not meant to do running. My body's not meant for running. Running's bad for you, so I'm never gonna run again. No, running and preparing to increase your running poorly is what is going to be bad for you. So I hope that answers that first question. This one we can do real quick. Is fat heavier than muscle? Go back to what your grade three science teacher was saying. I remember this as clear as day. Is, is and they would put the question up and it would be, is a kilo of feathers heavier than a kilo or bricks? Or is bricks a kilo of bricks heavier than a kilo of feathers? And as a three, a grade three, you're a grade three, which I don't know what are you, eight or nine, you always go, bricks is heavier, sir, bricks is heavier. No, a kilo is a kilo. If you've got a kilo of feathers, obviously you're gonna have a lot more of them, but you still have a kilo. Same thing that goes for fat and muscle. One kilo of fat is exactly the same kilo, um, weight as one kilo of muscle. However, muscle is much more dense than fat. So if we had the same kind of volume of fat and muscle, so I said, I mean, I, I don't know, I'm terrible at math. So like if you had one cubic centimeter of 
fat and one cubic centimeter of muscle, that one cubic centimeter of muscle would weigh more than one cubic centimeter of fat because it's a much more dense structure than fat is. So very easy, one kilo of fat is the exact same weight as one kilo of muscle. However, muscle is more dense. And this is why when you are losing weight and you might start to do some increased strength training, you're starting to put on a little bit of lean muscle, but you're seeing a lot of centimeters come off because you're losing a lot of that volume of fat coming off your body. But you might not see a lot of weight come off. Like you might start to see 20, 30 centimeters of six months worth of work coming off around your waist if you've got a lot of weight to lose. But maybe you're not kind of seeing the kind of correlation between that and seeing a lot of weight come off because maybe, as I said, you've started increasing your uh, strength training, you're starting to put on some lean muscle, so you're starting to build some muscle. Okay? So understand that muscle is denser than fat, so it takes up much less space and the weight is going to be more in that same volume of fat versus uh, muscle. <clears throat> but in relation to the actual question, is fat heavier than muscle? Absolutely not. All right, next one. Um, where are we? Uh, you shouldn't do weights and cardio on the same day. Absolutely false. If you are looking to... Imp and so let's, let's make a big caveat on this. You don't have to. Can you? Yes. Should you? Here's a kind of caveat where I'll go from. Now, if you're someone who's coming to me as a client and say, Adam, I want to run a PB half marathon time or I want to run my very first ever marathon. Clearly, our program is going to be more kind of geared towards a running based program with some strength training attached to it. On the flip side, if you came to me and said, Adam, I want to be a physique competitor, I want to be a bodybuilder, or Adam, I just want to put on some more lean muscle. Clearly, our program is going to be more geared towards strength training rather than cardio and weight uh, and running and things like that. So let's just kind of take the run-up, for example. If your goal, and it should always be goal-focused, if your goal is to run a marathon or run more or run more efficiently or whatever it might be, you should be putting those workouts that help that or help you achieve that goal first and foremost because that's where your <clears throat> major energy we should should be drawn towards so if you were going to do two workouts on the same day one of them strength one of them cardio or you're going to do them in the same moment <clears throat> and you're asking me which one should you do first do the one that's going to help you achieve your goal so if you are looking to try and achieve a running goal put your cardio first then come to the gym and do your strength training on the flip side, if you're coming to me and saying, Adam, I want to increase my lean muscle, I want to get stronger, I want to get on physique competitor, I want to be a bodybuilder, then put your strength training first and put your cardio second. Obviously, you're going to be you know, both neurally and physically taxed after doing either one of these workouts. So you want to put your major efforts and where your strength and when you're most fresh towards the, uh, I guess, the exercise that's going to give you most benefits towards your goal and then do the other one second because it's basically just a secondary workout. If you were coming again to me, there's no real need to do two workouts in a day or kind of back-to-back -back kind of doing a strength and a cardio workout. However, there are people like triathletes and ultra-distance type um, athletes who need to get a lot of volume of training in. So they might be doing two-a-day type training sessions or they might be doing them back-to-back -back like that. So from um, that point of view, then this is how you would kind of sandwich them together, putting an emphasis on the one that you need to be. If you're just someone who's saying, look, 
I want to get a bit healthier, I want to lose a little bit of weight, I want to get a little bit stronger. There's no need to be doing that kind of volume of training. You could look to do three to four weight training sessions a week, match that up with a whole heap of neat, you know, a lot of increased in your walking and getting moving, walking to the bus stop, walking to the shops, going up the flight of stairs rather than taking a lift, all these kinds of other things, and then adding in a couple of runs a week or maybe a bike ride and a run and a swim. There's plenty of time in the week to get this all in without having to kind of do it on the same day and kind of backing them uh, together. Uh, next one, where are we? Um, do you like fitness ticks and tips? No, that wasn't, that was just a spam one. Um, should you cross train? Uh, good question. Uh, this kind of, I think, is coming from a similar place to the previous question. Um, and is there a need to cross train? No, but should you be? Again, yes, but let's have a little caveat on that. And the kind of caveat comes around, I guess, again, what is your goal? What are you trying to achieve? And if you look at any kind of elite Olympic athlete or kind of high level athlete, they always have a periodization to their training. And I'll explain that term in uh, a bit more detail in a second, but the same should go for you. If you're looking to increase your strength, you're not gonna do the exact same program day after day, week after week, month after month, because you're going to adapt to that program. And at some point, your body needs increased adaptation, and so you're gonna to need to give it some sort of variation on the program that you're doing. Now, that variation will be adding more weight, changing the rep ranges, or changing the exercises, as well as a combination of all three of those things. When I talk about periodization, you're gonna talk about periods of when you might be doing really heavy training, periods when you do backed off training, periods when you do uh, you know, more training as in volume of training throughout that. And that's what I was talking about. Maybe you are backing um, two a day type sessions in. And there's gonna be a period when you're taking a real rest period and deloading. And this is what we call periodization. So the different phases throughout the kind of context of six months or 12 months worth of training. And for, again, an elite athlete, this becomes far more important than kind of the everyday, I guess, person who's just, as I said, trying to get fittier, add a, add a bit of extra strength and you know, cardiovascular fitness and things like that. So when we kind of say cross train, there might come a period where you might've been, let's say six months going really hard at your strength training. You've seen some really big improvements in your strength um, and what you're lifting and kind of your fitness and overall well-being. But then you might be starting to get some sore and achy joints. You're not sleeping as well. You're not recovering as quickly. And you could be going, um, and what your body needs is kind of a deload phase just to give your joints your mental um, as well. You might just be over having to go to the gym and push heavy, heavy, heavy. Um, your neural fatigue as well. This is something that a lot of people don't pay uh, much attention to because it's not something you can kind of immediately feel. Like if you do a really big strength training session, you might be sore for a day or two after it, and that's very easy to kind of, oh, my legs, I did this big leg session, or I did a big chest session, and my chest is really sore. That pain usually will go away within you know, 24 to 48 hours, but your nervous system, if it was a particularly big session, might be taxed for the next four days, and that's something to be very aware of, but a lot of people don't pay attention to. And now, if you went and did a very heavy chest workout, and then two days later you did another one, you're not gonna see 
too much um, degradation in kind of how you go about that because of your nervous system fatigue at that time. But if you back that on, back that on, back that on week after week, month after month, your nervous system is going to get completely taxed to a point where you need to take some time off that. And so that's my, where you might start to add in some cross training. So if you've been really heavy, as I said, in a really big running program, you've been doing mile after mile after mile on your running, or in the gym, you've just been doing week after week of heavy loaded type stuff, cross training in there, there might be a month, a week, six weeks, whatever you might kind of do to kind of take the load off what you have been doing to in quote cross train and give you some sort of different stimulus, stimulus for your mind, stimulus for your nervous system and kind of give you some of that deload. So if you are doing a really heavy kind of uh, strength training program, maybe your cross training might be you start doing some swimming, you start increasing your walking, maybe you go and do some bike riding. Again, just to take some of that load off, keeps your fitness ticking over, keeps your, I guess, your momentum of keeping active and doing something you know, a couple of times a week. On the flip side, if you're doing miles and miles and miles um, on your legs and you're just kind of really getting fatigued and sore through your hips and your glutes and your calves are all kind of cooked, then maybe, again, you might be doing some... Um, deep water running, you might be uh, heading into the gym and doing some very light but kind of strength-based exercises or you flip into some yoga, some Pilates, things like this that then allow, as I said, your body to have that deload phase so then you can come back after three to six weeks worth of kind of deloading to then be fresh again and ready to go again. So do you need a cross-train kind of weekly as in you know you you got to throw in a cross trainer session in there or you got to throw in some deep water no there's absolutely no need to be that kind of um frequent with your cross training but in a period of six to 12 months there should be phases where you are deloading the amount of work you're doing and cross training could be a very good way of helping to deload that um, from there um this one is one that, again, is an age-old myth of fat-burning zone best for, you know, is there a fat-burning zone or an exercise that's best for um, fat loss? And I always love the analogy in, because you've probably all seen them on the cross trainers or the treadmills at the gym. You might look at, there's a little chart just to the left of the screen or wherever it might be. And it, you know, it would have a kind of cross axis of saying, here's your age, here's your heart rate. And if you are... 37 years of age to be in the fat burning zone here's the heart rate should be at now that was disproved a long time ago some um, companies still put it on um, their equipment because it's something for people to look at it's something oh i should be aiming for this now what i like to sit there and kind of as i said the analogy i was given in university and i still carry to this day and use and i'll share with you now is Yes, there is a zone of heart rate where the predominant fuel source that's being used is fat. That does not mean that you are burning fat or losing fat. You're just using it as a fuel source. Okay, so let's just say you are in that fat burning zone. And yes, the lower kind of steady state type training will be in that kind of quote zone. And you might be using, let's say, 60% of your fuel is coming from fat as a fuel source and the other 40% is made up of mostly kind of um, you know carbohydrates and things like that. On the flip side, if you're doing a really intense bout of exercise, you might be getting 85% of your energy from carbohydrate stores and only 
what's that, 15% from your fat stores. You go, well, that means I should be doing much less, like a much more uh, kind of lower intensity exercise because I'm going to burn more fat. No, as I said, it's a fuel source. It's not you losing fat. Fat loss always comes down to calories. doesn't matter what burning zone you're in or heart rate zone you're in and what fuels you're using. At the end of the day, calories in versus calories out is what's going to help to see you lose fat. But the analogy, and let's just get back to that. I said I was going to um, explain that to you. The analogy I always got given was, would you prefer 85% of the wage you own uh, earn or would you prefer... Well, hang on, let me let me say that again. Um, I know I'm getting this um, wrong. I've just gone a complete blank. Let me go back to it and let me try and uh, gather my head here. I've got the baby crying in the background and I keep like, oh, should I go out to there? And my head's going all over the place. Apologies, guys. Let me start that again and make sure I'm nice and fresh here. Yes, you are burning more fat in a lower intensity bout of kind of exercise. But the overall calories you are burning in that is very, very low in comparison to a much more intense bout of exercise. And so the analogy kind of plays out is that while you are burning more of a percentage of fat as a fuel at a lower intensity rate, the total amount of calories is far less. Okay? So if we're looking that as a, as a number, let's just say in that bout of exercise, you were to burn 100 calories. And of that though, you're in a fat burning zone and you're burning 85% of that is coming from fat. Yeah, so you're getting, let's say, 85 calories worth of fat burning and 15 calories is coming from carbohydrates. On the flip side, you might do a very high intensity um, bout of exercise and you're able to burn 500 calories. Yeah, and you're saying, well, only 15% of that is coming from fat though. That total amount of fat burnt as opposed to carbohydrates burnt is going to be much less because you're doing much more, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I've got that analogy around the way. And it always came back to the analogy of kind of, would you prefer to earn 100% of the wage you have or 10% of the wage of Kerry Packer? Now, for those who aren't in Australia, Kerry Packer's, um, I'm not sure if he passed away, but anyway, he's one of the wealthiest people in the world. We could put it to Bill Gates in, one of the wealthiest people in the world kind of thing. Would you rather earn you know, 15% of his wage or would you rather earn 100% of your wage? Basically kind of meaning that, yes, you're burning more in quote fat at a lower intensity, but the overall amount of energy burning is very, very low. So it's like saying your wage, you can have 100% of it or would you rather just 10% of a very, very wealthy person's wage? I hope that analogy made sense. I know I've absolutely messed that up and I've gone around and around in circles and that. But at the end of the day, the myth of is there a fat burning zone or is there an exercise that's best for um, fat? Absolutely not. There's no fat burning zone. You should stop worrying about exercise being the, I guess, the factor that's helping you to lose fat. The thing you put or the food you put in your mouth and the calories you put in your mouth is the number one determining factor of how you are going to go on a fat loss process. The exercise you, sh you should do, you should be goal focused around your exercise, always. It should have nothing to do with calories. Are you aiming to get stronger? Are you running aiming to run faster? Are you aiming to have a lower heart rate? 
Uh, are you aiming to do a certain amount of sets and reps in a workout? And then tracking that and then trying to progress that. Whatever your aim is in exercise, it should always to be better than you were last time. Maybe you got 10 reps out at the 50 kilogram bench press. Next time you do the 50 kilogram bench press, could you do 11 reps or was it 12? Or now can you do 10 reps at 55 kilos? If it's a run that you're going on, you just did a 5K run and you did it in 30 minutes, could you do it next time in 29 minutes and 30 seconds? Or could you go further for that same amount of time? Maybe you could get five and a half kilometers out in the same amount of time that you did five kilometers in. Stop worrying about exercise being the helper or contributor to trying to get you to a fat loss goal or helping you with fat loss. That all comes down to nutrition. There is no fat burning zone. I've probably just made a much better case than kind of going through my analogy of kind of 10%, 15%, and I was all over it. So hopefully that has helped out. I apologize for where I was at and kind of going all over the place. All right, let's move on. Let's get off that one. Um, do you need to raise your heart rate to see any benefits from exercise? Um, gee, that's a. There needs to be so much more context to that. But in a roundabout way, yes, you need to kind of get yourself out of your comfort zone. Now, just increasing your walking, you're going to see an increase in heart rate. You know, you sitting on the couch and doing nothing and then moving is going to have an increase in heart rate. Now, do you have to have a particular rise in your heart rate to see uh, improvements in um, or benefits from the exercise? No, like you don't have to get your heart rate to 180 beats a minute. You can raise your heart rates to 120 beats a minute and still get benefits from that exercise you're doing. And that's why I'm always the first to one to say, just start walking more, get out there, moving, doing more, and there's going to be ample benefits to that. You hear people say the benefits to interval exercise all the time, and people all of a sudden start thinking, well, that means I've got to sprint really fast for one and then be um, walking on the other one. Absolutely not. They've done research with the elderly who clearly can't be sprinting, and it would be detrimental to their health if they are. But if they do an uh, interval-based walk, that has been hugely beneficial to them. So if you're someone at the moment, whether you're elderly or whether you're very overweight and you can't you know, massively increase your heart rate without seeing you kind of keel over and potentially die or be in a very bad way, look at your walking pace now when you are comfortable. Maybe you can comfortably walk at two and a half or three kilometers an hour. But in an interval, you might be able to push that for 30 seconds or a minute up to four and a half or five kilometers an hour. And that's where you can start. And they have seen huge benefits in line with people who can get their heart rate to, uh, you know, their running speed to 15 kilometers an hour and 10 kilometers an hour. That's their interval. Now, obviously, they're going to be starting at a higher level, but they see an increase in their uh, fitness levels. Just as much, though, as those very sedentary people, they'll see a very similarized, sometimes if not better, because they're starting from a very low place. And so absolutely, you do not have to be kind of keeled over vomiting, have a heart rate in the you know high 180s, or doing a very intense bout of exercise to get benefits from that exercise. Now I'm talking obviously about cardiovascular exercise there. So let's just kind of just clear that and say, look, if you are someone who can't do high intensity kind of cardiovascular exercise, you can see benefits from still doing interval-based type training but doing it in a much lower intensity type level. As long as there is a kind of steady state 
um, you know, I guess level that you're doing it at, and then pushing that up into a place where it is challenging for you, and then you cycle back down into a lower state, cycle back up to that higher state, that will start to improve, and you will start to see improvements in your heart rate response, as well as your ability to maybe go longer at that pace. So maybe your high intensity at the moment is five kilometers an hour, and you can only do a minute at that, and then you have to come back down to the lower state. But maybe within a week, two weeks, a month or so, not that much time, you will start to see that you can now hold that for 90 seconds, or you might be able to get yourself up to six kilometers an hour for one minute rather than just a five um, kilometers an hour. And over time, that will slowly build up and you will see the benefits from that exercise. The same goes for um, strength training. I know this is not in relation to here because you're asking about heart rate rise, but you do see a heart rate rise when doing strength training as well. Again, you don't need to see a massive increase in that to see a benefit from the exercise you're doing. Now, strength training, you're probably not going to be looking at your heart rate as a kind of indicator of are you seeing a benefit from this. But strength training, you see it around strength. So maybe you're someone who can only do two kilos for your dumbbell chest press at the moment, and you get 10 reps out of that. Maybe next time you try 12 reps, or you try and do three kilos for 10 reps. Still trying to always have that kind of process in your mind, like I was turning, um, talking about on the previous one, in that you should always be trying to progress and get stronger or move faster or move more efficiently should always be your goal around exercise. So just like you hear me talk at length about tracking your calories, if you are someone who needs to start losing some weight and you have no idea about the calories you're eating and how beneficial that can be, track your exercise and track every parameter you can around that. If you've got a heart rate monitor, if you've got a Fitbit, if you've got a step counter, whatever it might be, start tracking what you're doing and paying attention to how it tracks and how you feel. And over time, what gets measured gets improved. It happens time and time again. You will see an improvement. And so just get out there and start doing it. All right, I think... Um, I think we got a few more. I think there's a lot more. Okay, there's a lot more here than I thought. Um, and we're already 30 minutes in. All right, guys, let's keep pushing on. Um, a bit of hard work never killed anyone. Um, I guess so. I, I don't know exactly what that question is um, trying to ask or what it's in relation to, but it kind of goes back to what I'm just saying there. Again, you don't have to bust yourself and kill yourself to get a benefit from the exercise and just be kind of understanding of where you are in your exercise journey at the moment. If you've never exercised before, I wouldn't go and start CrossFit or F45 or do something that's super high intensity on day one because you'll probably hate it. You might injure yourself. You might kill yourself. And is the benefit really there for you? Start small and progress up into bouts of exercise that are progressively more intense over time or progressively ask you to do more or push more or do more. So... Yeah, I hope that answers that question. I don't know where it came from. Um, Sit-ups, do they work if you have a very large stomach? Okay, let's break two different aspects of this apart. Sit-ups, do they work? What do you actually mean by do they work? Do they help to increase the strength of your abs? Absolutely. Will they still do that even if you have a large stomach? Absolutely. Now, maybe this question's also coming around, if I do sit-ups and I've got a large stomach, Will I still be able to reduce my stomach size if I do sit-ups? Obviously, as I've always said, the re or the way that you are going to reduce your weight and then reduce your centimeters, be that around your stomach, be that around your bum, your thighs, your legs, anywhere, 
is through a calorie deficit. No amount of exercise or sit-ups you cannot spot reduce. So you do you can do a thousand sit-ups, you're never going to see a single centimeter of your centim- of your waist disappear unless you're doing it with a calorie deficit and the food that you're eating. You can sit there all you like. Now you can certainly get stronger in that area. You do a thousand sit-ups every day, you are going to improve the strength of your abdominal area. Is that the way I would go about it? No, but you could do it like that. So I hope that answers that um, question on two different fronts. So as I said, sit-ups will absolutely make, or sit-ups or any core exercise will make your core stronger, your abdomen stronger. But will it reduce the size of or the circumference of your waist? No. So kind of, as I said, go back to your nutrition being the reason why you're going to see a reduction in your weight and the centimeters around your waist. Um only uh, you should only lift every second day so your muscles can recover. We talked about this a little bit before. Um, no, you can absolutely lift every single day, but you would periodize or kind of change up um, what you're doing to make sure that the area that you have worked has had time to recover, both physiologically, uh, physiologically and neuro, um, neurovascularly as well. So you, neurovascular neuro um, neuro as well. So obviously you want to make sure that your nervous system is recovering as well as your muscles are getting um, ample time to recover as well. As I said, your muscles recover much, much, much quicker than your nervous system does. So make sure you are giving ample time to that area. Now, again, if you came to me and said, Adam, I want to do a four-day split. I'm going to be able to go to the gym four days a week. What should I be doing if that or Adam, I can go to the gym seven days a week. So you know, give me a program for that. Those two, those two different programs are going to be vastly different based on the amount that you can give in. I'm sorry, based on the amount of energy and time you can put into that. I think at a bare minimum, you should be doing at least two to four. Now that's an average. Obviously, there's going to be weeks where you might be down at two, and there's going to be weeks where you might be up at four. But if you're averaging out around three to four training sessions a week, that's more than enough of. Um, strength training to be in the gym or at home to give you a benefit and start seeing you progress your strength and progress your ability to kind of do more and be fitter because of what you're doing. If you're doing two sessions a week, then a full body program would be plenty fine to do two times a week. And you'd split that maybe Monday, Thursday, Monday, Friday, Tuesday, Saturday, something along those lines. So you do a really big full body session You've then got ample time to recover, and then you can go again. If you're coming to me and said you're doing four sessions a week, then you probably do a split-type program. No, in fact, you would definitely do a split-type program, and I would probably cycle that as in an upper-body program, a lower-body program, and then a full-body program, and then you'd back to the top as an upper-body program. So you might, on Monday, do an upper-body program. Then, let's say, Wednesday, you do a lower-body program, then Friday, you do a full body program, and then maybe on a Sunday, you're then doing um, like an upper body program again, the same upper body program you did on the Monday, and then the following Tuesday, you would then do your lower body program, then on the Thursday, you might do the uh, full body program, and you can see how then it starts to cycle through those three workouts that you're doing four times a week. Okay, so yes, give yourself ample time, but again, you should only lift every second day to have your muscles recover. No, you can, rec- you, as I said, you can lift every single day. Just make sure the muscle groups that you are using do have ample time to recover. I wouldn't be doing a full body program every single day. 
One, there's no point to. Two, you'd be far too fatigued. You're not going to get anything out of those sessions, kind of session three, session four, session five, and onwards. Um, you're just never going to give yourself ample time um, to recover. Uh, don't eat late at night. A calorie is a calorie, right? Absolutely. This idea that eating late at night is what makes you get fat is stupid. It's what Susie from Accounting likes to promote because this idea that, well, you know, if I eat all at night, I've got all those calories sitting in my system. They don't need to be used because I'm not moving, so therefore these are going to be stored as fat. Absolutely incorrect. I have a number of clients that do one meal a day, and they tend to make that at uh, dinner time. Your body needs a certain amount of fuel per day. Now, whether you're moving or not, that body still requires that fuel. Most of the energy requirements of our body actually come from just our basal metabolic rate. So the systems inside our body that keep us alive take far more energy per day than the exercise that you're doing. You know, it can be 60% of the energy that we require every day is just to keep us alive. So if you were just catatonic sitting in bed doing absolutely nothing, you would have 60% of the energy requirements of someone who gets up and moves about each day. You know, there's still a lot of calories that our body requires every single day just to lay there and be alive. And so this idea that if you're not moving, then you're gonna be storing all of these calories, absolutely not. So if your body requires 1,800 calories a day to be alive, to keep you moving, to do the activities you do, to do a little bit of exercise, to chase around with the kids or whatever it might be, whether you eat those 1,800 calories at 10 o'clock at night in one big meal, or you have 1,800 calories spread out over five different meals throughout the day, it makes zero difference. So absolutely big myth that Susie from Accounting loves to push that eating late at night is gonna make you fat. No, it's calories that are the most important factor. So eat those calories whenever you like. Uh, walking or running, which is better? So many different uh, people saying different things. Um, again, better. What is better? Unique context around every single question. And so I'm presuming because I'm normally talking about fat loss, people are going to say this question's coming from the angle and I'm just making a presumption that you're asking, is walking or running better for fat loss? Again, exercise should never be the factor that you're looking to to help you with fat loss. But if I have to give an answer to this, calories are obviously what's most important. So if you're going to sit there and say, look, Adam, I've got my nutrition dialed in. Now I want to make sure I'm getting the best bang for my buck on with my exercise. What should I be doing with regards to fat loss? Something that requires you to burn more calories obviously is going to be better for your fat loss process. So if you can run, and that's the big caveat here, running would be the better option for you. However, if you came to me and you're 150 kilos, you haven't done a whole lot of exercise in your life, and you're saying, Adam, should I be running or walking? What's better for um, you know for fat loss? And let's just say, again, that person is now dialed in their nutrition, so they're doing everything fine there. And I said to that 150 kilo person that you now need to run, they're probably not gonna do it. They're gonna, maybe they do it once, and they're so sore they can't walk for five days. Is it more, is it, in quote, better for them to do running? No, because they probably won't be running if I gave them a program that only involved running. They would be far better off doing walking because it's gonna be much more in context and kind of helping them achieve their goals. So if you can run, and running is something that you enjoy and you don't mind doing, then go and run. If you want to do walking, 
then go and do walking. But as I said, exercise is not the reason or not the kind of um, focus point around fat loss. That comes down to nutrition. So hope that answers that question with regards to there. Fasted cardio is better for fat loss. Again, a huge myth that the fasting community, and it really irks me that, and I'm going to be completely honest, I used to say this a long time ago when I first got into the world of fasting, but again, there's a big difference between fat burning as a fuel as opposed to fat loss. You know, how can I kind of put this in a different way um, that kind of really clear this up? Fat oxidization, or again, using fat as a fuel. This is where the keto brigade love to get in because they sit there and say, because you're eating more fat, your body utilizes fat better as a fuel. Therefore, you're burning more fat and carbohydrates are the reason why you're, you can't lose weight. Absolutely not. Yes, your system is using more fat because you've got more fat available as a fuel source. That doesn't mean you're losing body fat. You're just putting more fat in. Your body uses it as, um, as a high proportion as fuel, but that doesn't mean the actual fat in your body, you being overweight, is being reduced. Calories are still king here. So going back to fasted cardio, yes, fasted cardio or fasted exercise, it doesn't have to be cardio, but fasted exercise will proportionally burn fat more so then it will carbohydrates and things like that. But that's just as a fuel source. It's not making you lose body fat. Okay, so if we had Susie 1 and Susie 2, Susie 1 is dialed in with her exercise, just like, uh, sorry, her calories that she's consuming each day, just like Susie 2 is. So they've both got the exact, you know, they're doppelganger twins. They're both eating the exact same food but Susie 1 does fasted cardio, and Susie 2 eats her lunch and then does her exercise, both of them will lose the exact same amount of weight. Susie 1, if we looked at her kind of blood work and how her exercise um, kind of, I guess, you know, fuel sources were, yes, will have used fat more predominantly as a fuel source during her workout, as opposed to Susie 2, but the amount of fat that she will lose and her ability to lose fat is no different between Susie 1 and Susie 2. So get away from this idea that if I do fasted exercise that it's going to be better for my fat loss. It makes zero difference whatsoever. So I hope that one has absolutely been cleared up. Um, muscle will turn into fat once stopped lifting. This is another huge mistake that people make and absolutely is a myth. Muscle and fat are two completely different parts of the body. It's not like you have a bicep muscle and then you stop using it and that bicep muscle itself starts just disintegrating and kind of transforming into fat. If you stop exercising and if you st um, start increasing the amount of food that you take in, you will start accumulating fat and you will likely lose some muscle mass because you're now not training as much. But it's not that the fat is, sorry, the muscle is turning into fat. It's just you're seeing a reduction in your um, lean muscle mass. You're seeing an increase in your fat mass. And so there might be, I can understand where the th um, kind of thought process comes from. My muscles are turning into fat. Absolutely not. So in regard, like kind of to answer that question directly, will muscle turn into fat when you stop lifting? 
No, it will not turn into fat. So you can get away from that idea. But will you lose some muscle if you stop lifting? Yes, but our body is very, very good at maintaining muscle. If we weren't, then we won't have, we weren't have been, we wouldn't have been able to progress and get to where we are now over the thousands and thousands of years that we've been on this planet as a uh, homo sapien, yeah? We didn't have access to gyms or kind of, <clears throat> excuse me, um, food like we do nowadays. Yes, we were probably much more labor intensive in what we were doing, and so we're kind of constantly moving much more. But when there were vast famines, like, you know, really long times of, um, you know, our ancestors going without food, they weren't out there doing a whole lot of activity because they didn't have the energy to. So this idea that your body's just going to melt away, um, you know, the moment you stop doing um, a single workout or if you miss a week of workout, a month of workouts. Now, if I kind of put this back into a real world scenario, many of you will know that I've had pneumonia for the last, what, six or seven weeks. I haven't lifted a weight lifted a weight and obviously um, my gym has been closed for months on end and many of you probably haven't been to the gym as well but I haven't lifted a weight close to probably four months now pretty much until the, since the beginning of the year because I put a big emphasis on my running from the start of the year even though we were still at the gym I was only doing very minimal lifting at the gym <clears throat> excuse me and then obviously when the coronavirus came through gym shut down my work shut down um, my ability to do any kind of <clears throat> excuse me um, any kind of lifting massively decreased and then I got very unwell with my pneumonia <coughs> which I'm still showing you here and so my activity levels have plummeted I haven't exercised I haven't lifted be that body weight training like some push-ups or squats or in the gym for a very long time now has my muscle mass decreased absolutely it has but has it just completely disappeared no our body is very, very good at maintaining the muscle that we have, especially if you're maintaining the protein consumption each day. We still need those building blocks to obviously maintain our uh, lean muscle mass, and that comes from two places, the fuel we give it as well as the work we um, you know, expose it to. So if you've seen a big decrease in your, you know, your lifting and going to the gym and things like that, but you're still maintaining you know, a, a basic level of physicality, as well as eating adequate protein every day, it's going to be a very, very small degradation of your lean muscle mass and your, you know, your muscles over time. Now, if you completely went catatonic and just laid down, weren't eating very well, weren't getting much protein in, you will see a massive um, reduction in your lean muscle mass. And you see this with people who go through major surgery. Like if you really bust up your leg and you've got a really badly broken leg and it's in a cast, you can't move it, you're not doing anything. You see that muscle wastage happen. But there's a very big difference between doing nothing, and I mean nothing, as opposed to doing, in quote, nothing, when you're kind of just becoming a bit more lazy and might not be uh, exercising much, you might not have access to a gym or whatever it might be. Very big difference between those two nothings. So keep moving, keep yourself active where you can, keep adequate protein in, and you won't see a massive um, loss in muscle mass. In fact, your body, as I said, is very good at maintaining that muscle mass there. So don't stress if you miss a workout or a week of workouts or a month of workouts. Uh, next question, running on a treadmill will give you long-term damage on your knees, true or false? Now, we are talking about this with regards to running before, <clears throat> but we'll bring it full circle and kind of come directly to this question. Let's talk about running on treadmills. 
Now, I see absolutely no reason whatsoever if, <clears throat> well, I'm fair weather kind of runner, so I, I hate running out in the bad weather. So let's just kind of talk about me um, for a second, and then we'll kind of bring it right back. I hate running in the rain, so the moment it starts raining, I will gravitate towards a treadmill. The only other time I'll tend to use a treadmill is if I'm doing very high velocity based training. So if I'm doing some really high intensity um, sprint sessions where I'm up at 18, 19, 20 kilometers per hour, it's very hard for me to do that on like the ground out running because I know I get slack in kind of maintaining that speed. But when you're on a treadmill, you can't get slack with maintaining that speed because the moment you slow down, you fall off the back. So it keeps you very honest being on a treadmill. Okay, so they're the two points. If it's raining and it's disgusting outside or I'm doing very high intensity, very high speed type sprint type training, I will use a training uh, a treadmill. Every single other time, I see no reason whatsoever that you should ever be using a treadmill. Now, there's probably very many purist runners out there going, Adam, just put a jacket on, go out and run in the rain, it's fine. No, I find it miserable, so that's for me. I understand purist runners go, no, just get out there and enjoy it. And that's fine. I understand where that kind of mindset's coming from. But if the weather is nice, it's clear outside, there is no, I just, I am still baffled by the fact that I see some people who have a gym membership purely so they can run on a treadmill. One, it's a waste of money. And for two, you've got this beautiful outdoor um, setting, go and run outdoors. That's not coming from an injury standpoint here though. So let's just go back to this question. In many cases, running on treadmills probably better for your knees because most treadmills bounce, and so they're a bit more forgiving on your knees. Now, if you're running outside, though, I wouldn't be running on bitumen and the footpaths all the time. Try and mix up the grounds that you're running on, whether that is track-based running or you can find a softer surface or you run on the grass or whatever it might be. Don't just always spend your time running on the pavement because that is far more um, kind of impactful on the knees. And if we kind of compared the two, running on a treadmill, as I said, is a much softer environment. And so is probably in fact better for your knees. Now, let me just bring us at a caveat with regards to what happens when you're running on a treadmill. And I remember this study back in my day, I, can't, I don't know the name of the study, it was far too long ago, but they were studying a group of NFL um, players from a particular team that are in a very cold climate. It might have been like the Pittsburgh Steelers or something like that. Now, these particular um, guys were doing a lot of indoor training at the time because it was a miserable kind of pre-season and kind of off-season when they were doing all of the training. So a lot of their running type stuff was spent on the treadmill. And that, that particular year, they had a um, unusually high amount of hamstring tears and they're like I, I don't understand like we're as fit as we've ever been like we had a really good off season our guys are all fit their times on their kind of you know you know sprint tests and their strength they're all through the roof I, I can't understand why we've had this huge increase in hamstring tears now they went back over that and kind of looked at well, what was going on and the big difference was that year is they spent a disproportional amount of time in comparison to other seasons on the treadmill. Now the treadmill is a is a different beast with regards to running altogether. When you plant your foot and you are running in the outdoor space and running along the ground, you have to actively contract your hamstring and that posterior chain altogether to then drag that foot underneath you and then propel you forwards. 
When you're on a treadmill, though, when you plant your foot out in front, the treadmill belt is moving, and so it basically takes your foot back for you. There is far less far less contraction going on in that posterior chain and in hamstrings particularly. So if you spend a lot of time running on treadmills, your hamstrings are not getting the workout that they would be and are not getting not improving in their performance in a proportional way as they would be if you're running outdoors. So if you then went and did a race outdoors, like if you're, if you're training through winter, I understand it's miserable, it's cold, but you're training through winter to do a marathon that's at the start of spring or something, which is what most kind of major marathons do. We do it here. Melbourne Marathon is run in October. So obviously to get pre- prepared for that, you're going to have to run through winter. If you're spending most of that time sitting on a treadmill, if you then go and run that marathon then on the ground, you're going to be very prone to injury because those hamstrings are going to be very, very weak and it's going to be a very, very different um, environment to be running on. So to kind of answer that question, as I said directly, is it damaging to your knees? No, but there are other parts of your body, in particular your hamstrings, if you spend a lot of time running on treadmills. So unless you absolutely have to, Stop running on treadmills. Go outside. Spend some time outdoors. Get some vitamin D. Very important. Get some sunshine. Go outdoors and be in amongst nature and fresh air and things like that. Stop sitting inside on a treadmill. Um, next one. Best time to do cardio before or after weight training. We said that before. Again, as I said, what is your goal? Put that particular exercise kind of part of your um, program first. If it's to get better you know, more physically, uh, cardiovascularly, and you want to run better or ride better or whatever it might be, do that cardiovascular training first. If your aim is to get stronger and get more lean muscle mass onto you, then do cardio first. Um, Exercise to lose weight in a specific area, e.g. tummy. We spoke about this one as well. There is no such thing as spot reducing with regards to circumference. You can absolutely spot increased strength so if i sat there and just did a thousand bicep curls every single day and did nothing on my right arm my left arm is going to get a hell of a lot stronger than my right arm would be but would that mean that i would lose fat around my left arm more than i would around my right arm absolutely not fat loss comes from a calorie deficit it does not come from the exercise that you're doing so no there is no exercise um, that you can specifically do that's going to help you out to reduce a certain area. And that, guys, is all of the questions answered with regards to exercise, fitness, and fat loss myths. Ooh, that's a good uh, way of um, calling this podcast today. Um, But guys, I know I did, there was a a terrible job on a couple of those in regards to my head got lost because, as I said, I can hear my child in the background sometimes crying and my head went a bit waver. But I think we got there in the end and I think most of those questions were answered pretty well and I hope you found value from this podcast and as always guys I am humbled by the fact that you are here listening to my podcast um, that you share my podcast and that you find value in my podcast and so thank you for all of you who have been here um, from the very beginning I think we're on episode 76 now and for you who are new to my podcast welcome hit that subscribe button Give me a little five-star rating if you uh, did enjoy it and give me a quick little review. Positive review would be even better. Um, But guys, I am always, as I said, a pleasure to have you here and speaking to you. I hope you've enjoyed this particular podcast. We will be back next week. So I'll talk to you then. Love to you all. Ciao.